Hey Trojan fans, it's time to get into the huddle with the Peristyle Podcast. The Peristyle Podcast is your weekly ticket to USC football and recruiting news. Don't forget, you can download the podcast 24-7 at our website, peristylepodcast.com. And now, here's the host of the Peristyle Podcast, uscfootball.com publisher, Ryan Abraham. Hello, Trojan fans. Welcome to the Peristyle Podcast on a Thursday. Going to talk some USC Trojan football today with our buddy, our pal, Shotgun Spratling. Does a great job covering the team and recruiting over at uscfootball.com. He'll join us here in a couple of minutes. I want to talk a little bit first uh, about kind of what we're going to do. So today's show, a lot of questions have come in uh, that were just kind of not for Harvey Hyde, not for Dan Weber. Usually they just come to me. Do a solo show. So Shotgun's going to come in a little bit early. We normally do our Thursday live show at noon, which we're going to do today on Facebook Live. Uh, but he came in a little early. We're going to answer some of the questions that were kind of left over. Lots of team stuff from the championship game, from everything. So we're going to do our best to get to all those. You guys have sent in a ton. So I'm going to try to wipe all those out and get all of your questions answered. And it won't be just me today. It'll be Shotgun Spratling. If you have any questions or comments, podcast at uscfootball.com. Or you can call or text us at 424-254-9141. That's 424-254-9141. We're also on uh, all the social media aspects. You can follow me at Inside Troy. You can subscribe uh, on iTunes, itunes.com slash Peristyle Podcast. So uh, very cool stuff. Uh, we love it when you subscribe. We love it when you Send us some positive feedback, and of course, a five-star rating. That helps propagate the show. Before we jump into all of that, I wanted to thank our sponsor, Blue Apron. So it's the number one fresh ingredient and recipe delivery service in the country. Blue Apron's mission is to make incredibly home-cooked meals accessible to everyone. So uh, all of their the animals, beef, chicken, pork, come from reasonably raised animals. Uh, they ship the exact amount of each ingredient required for a recipe, so there's no food waste. So they send you everything you need. And there's this beautiful uh, cardstock, full colored, both sides. It'll show you what the dish should look like, what the ingredients that were sent, um, some of the knickknacks that you you know included, like different uh, spices and stuff. And then uh, step-by-step instructions on the back showing you exactly what you should be doing. So if you're not a great cook, it shows you, hey, this is where you put it in the pot. This is what you're doing. This is how you cut up the, the vegetables. So it's pretty cool stuff. Um, so I, what I like to do is, is make these meals every once in a while. We actually have a couple on order I'm waiting for right now. The last one we did was a spicy Korean style chicken, uh, which is really cool. It looks impressive. So if you want to cook for your husband, your wife, girlfriend, boyfriend, whatever it is, um, check it out because it's a really impressive looking meal. And you look at the ingredients, you know, I'm looking at the picture, you look at the ingredients, it's simple. You had boneless, uh, skin on chicken thighs, a potato, some red cabbage scallions, and enoki mushrooms, which I didn't know what those were, but uh, they go by the name Golden Needle Mushroom. So uh, they were pretty cool. And some spices. You take that, like those simple ingredients, and when you cook it all up, it's this beautiful looking dish um, with the purple from the cabbage and uh, the potatoes and, and a really nice reddish uh, tint to the, the chicken with the sauce and everything. So it's a really cool looking dish. And so if you want to go check out this week's menu on blueapron.com, you will get $30 off your first order with free shipping. So go to blueapron.com slash peristyle. That's blueapron.com splash, uh, splash, <laughs> slash 
Peristyle, you'll love how good it feels, tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash Peristyle. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Now, it's making me hungry. I haven't eaten this morning. And uh, now I'm just thinking about the Blue Apron meals that we've made. So definitely I would check it out if you uh, if you like to do home-cooked stuff, but you're not maybe the great chef. Or even if you are, it's great that it all comes in, in one package, exactly what you need. Plus, you get 30 bucks off. So And free shipping. Hard to beat. That's a great deal. Uh, we had one voicemail I wanted to play. I'll just answer myself before uh, Shotgun kind of runs in here. This was sent a little while ago, but I wanted to address it. So here you go. Hey, Ryan. This is Jeff from Orange County. Uh, just want to let you guys know that I love your podcast, and I really respect your opinions, which is why it's really tough for me to accept your opinion that USC should not go to the playoff. And it, it, it's tough for me to hear you say that not only should they not go, but you don't want USC to go to the playoff. I absolutely think we should go to the playoff. At this point, it looks like we'll probably play in the Fiesta Bowl against either Wisconsin or Ohio State. Uh, I guess my question is, what's the difference between playing Wisconsin or Ohio State in the Fiesta Bowl or playing Wisconsin or Ohio State in the college football playoff? I'd rather play in the college football playoff against one of them than the Fiesta Bowl. I know you're saying, well, it, it, you're you're afraid that we're going to get beat down in college football playoff. Well, you know what? I'm afraid we're going to go to the Fiesta Bowl and get beat down by one of those teams. All the, all the schools in, in the top ten right now, it's kind of a crapshoot. Any one of the four schools from the top ten could go to the playoff. And you know what? It, it's kind of a free-for-all. You throw USC in there, and it's a free-for-all as well. USC could very well win the championship along with, you know, say Wisconsin, Ohio State, Auburn. They're all pretty equal, in my opinion. Okay, thanks again, Ryan. Take care. Jeff in Orange County, thanks for the question. And, uh, yeah, okay, so I wouldn't say uh, afraid. I'm not afraid. Of it. Like, I'm not playing. I'm not afraid of anything. Um, I just – my thought was for this team, the way it, the way they've been playing um, – the way they're made up, it probably would be better for the the overall growth of the team to go to a Fiesta Bowl and, and maybe have a more winnable game than go into the playoff. As it turns out, you're going to the Cotton Bowl. They're playing Ohio State like you thought they might play, which a lot of people thought. Um, and, you know, certainly that's a team with a lot of athletes. You want to talk about people that complain about the way USC is playing. They just out-athlete people. It's going to be hard to out-athlete Ohio State. Um you know, it's certainly a great matchup, and certainly, like you said, there's potential for a beatdown there. Ohio State's favored by a touchdown going into the game. I think sneaking in at number four, I knew whoever was going to be number one, it was going to be a tough, a tough matchup. And I think playing Clemson is going to be a lot tougher than playing Ohio State. Now, USC has enough horses that they could make a run and run the table and do some some really good things. I mean, that, that's certainly possible. We just haven't seen them really play that way. So my my whole point was, you know what? Like last year, not making the championship game was actually a good thing. If you talk to you know some of the people inside, because the USC team was so beat up, they likely go to the championship game and lose. Now, do you ever want to not go to the championship game? No, you shouldn't. But last year, probably better that you didn't, and you sneak into the Rose Bowl, and you win the Rose Bowl, and everything feels good. I think the season feels a lot different if you go to the championship game and lose because the team's all beat up and everything. So I think it just kind of worked out better last year. Going to the Rose Bowl was like the greatest thing, right? Um, I just felt it would kind of work out better this year if you win the Pac-12 championship, which they did, and that's the big part, uh, then 
and go and and play a tough team in the Fiesta Bowl or you know in this case the Cotton Bowl and get a victory that way. So uh, that's just kind of the way I felt it would go. I get. I mean, I understand. You're USC. You want to make the playoff as often as possible. I just felt like maybe it's not the best thing for this team this year. They certainly could still get blown out in the in uh, the Cotton Bowl against Ohio State. Then where are you sitting? I think it's a positive that you won the Pac-12. And I, the people that poo-poo that, I just don't get it because USC hadn't won since 2008. So the last time USC won the Pac-12 was with Pete Carroll. You know, you remember that? Like seems like ages ago. Well, that's the last time USC won the Pac-12. And the, the Pac-12 South had never won that game. So to me, it was a very important step for USC this year to win the Pac-12 South. And I think once you have a, a, a brand new head coach uh, that doesn't have any experience, uh, do you want to be learning on the job at USC? No, but USC hired someone that was going to have to learn on the job. So I don't know if it could have worked out much better than winning the Rose Bowl you know, in that first year, winning the Pac-12 the next year with everyone's like, hey, well, you, you didn't win the Pac-12. Well, now he's done that. And if you're able to beat an Ohio State in the Fiesta Bowl, the resume for Clay Helton, all the, the people that are down on him, and, you know, look, I was very from the beginning, uh, USC should have went out and got a bigger name. I was not on board uh, with this, but he's the head coach now. And like, I'm not going to ignore, just because I didn't agree with the hiring, I'm not going to ignore what he's done. Um, yes, they've looked crappy in a lot of games and they didn't play up the potential and all that kind of stuff. But if you're able to go 12 and two, like, that's pretty darn good. You're Pete Carroll kind of territory, and it sets you up for you know maybe making a run next year, especially if Sam Darnold ends up coming back. So um, Jeff at OC, I get what you're saying. I'm just looking at if I'm like a, a general man, like if you do like a Herm Edwards thing and you're hiring like a general manager of your college football program, um, I, I think if you were planning it, the way it ended up last year after starting one and three, probably it couldn't have gone any better. Obviously. Um, and I think it would have been better. I mean, yes, if you go to the Pac-12 championship game and win, it's a little bit better. But it just the way the team was beat up, I just don't think it was going to happen. And then this year, I just felt like, yeah, I'm not sure that it would be best to go and, and get shut out or something uh, against Clemson in the first round. That's that's all I'm saying. Now, it's not good to go and, and get beat up by Ohio State either, but I think that's a much more uh, winnable game. I think the spread would be a lot closer against Ohio State than it would be uh, against uh, uh, Clemson. All right, well, let's welcome in uh, Shotgun Spratling. Follow him on Twitter at SpR. He's in studio a little bit early, coming early, so we can do our live show a bit, but he wanted to... So I don't have to answer all the questions by myself. We'll get Shotgun in here. Yeah, I just figured it'd be nice, come in, help you out, give you a little reprieve. You know, I know you've been, you know, having to listen to everything. Jana's yelling about uh, Tennessee and probably yelling, stop, stop, I don't want to hear anymore. So, you know, give your voice a little bit of rest, so I'm coming to help out. Yeah, well, it got it's gonna it's not be a it's not a rest day, but yes, uh, it looks like the Tennessee coaching search is finally over. Uh, I spent the morning scraping popcorn off the ceiling in my closets. Are you are you much of a like handy guy? I'm not I'm not real handy, but I'm like doing all the stuff in the house now. I am not. I'm like the exact opposite of my dad. My dad is super handy. My girlfriend <laughs> hangs out with my dad. They do like arts and crafts projects together when uh, they're in the same in the same city together. Whereas I'm like. Can we just pay somebody real quick because I'm busy? I got, you know, I got three jobs, so I'm trying to get from one job to the next, so I don't have time to be handy all the time. But the good thing is, you can always just YouTube everything, and you can yes. figure out how to be handy. Uh, so if I had time, I would be more handy. But because of, of my schedule, I'm not usually the most handy person. Yeah, I try. Like I, I YouTube a lot of stuff, but like we're redoing our closets, and I've, you know, 
popcorn had scraped off all of our ceilings in the house and uh but in the closet that was still there so i've scraped popcorn off two ceilings now and they're like covered with dust this morning but it's cool. It's all it's all good now. Popcorn uh, ceilings are always difficult. That's a thing from the eighties and early nineties that I don't know why was a big thing. We still have I think in my my house back in Georgia. So uh, you know, I don't know why my dad was like, This is a great idea and he's just too lazy now to, <laughs> to be up on a ladder to be trying to take care of everything now. But if I was to to be home for more than a week, it might be like, Hey, can you can you just go ahead and scrape all that off? Like I, I feel like I might get that task uh, handed down to me. Yeah, it's um it's no fun, but it was luckily it was small. I didn't have to do like the whole ceiling, just like inside the closet. So it wasn't too bad. All right. Well, let's jump in, uh, answer some of these questions. We got a ton. So we'll try to go through them quickly. Tarek with a Q, uh, he said, can someone explain David Shaw being named coach of the year in the Pac 12? Uh, he called it the package 12, but the Pac 12. Well, USC, while USC play wasn't great, coach Helton had a better record than Shaw. The team had a higher ranking. Helton beat Shaw twice in the same year and won the conference championship. I don't see on what grounds the conference has to name Shaw coach of the year. I mean, when you get a coach of the year, it almost always is, hey, it's the guy that wins. The guy that wins the whole thing. Yes. You know, this guy, obviously, you won the championship of whatever league, conference, you know, the entire nation. You, that's how you win. Or your team really overachieved uh, from, from the expectations and you know the, the talent that you may have. David Shaw didn't really do either of those. No. I mean, they, st- they have talent. Hey, they went through, they had some injuries. Bryce Love got nicked up. They won through all those games. You lost to San Diego State early in the year with some, you know, when the lights went out and everything. You lost to USC twice. Yeah, that doesn't make too much sense. No. Should Clay Helton necessarily have been the coach of the year? Not not necessarily. He could be a candidate. And, yeah. again, it's because he has a team that won the championship, then he should be one of the guys you look at. But you also look at, like, a team like Mike Leach, you know, at Washington State, a team that, you know, was not in the top 25 coming into the year. I think the reason why Clay Helton is not the slam dunk pick is because USC started number four. You know, they're no longer number four, so they've dropped. Um, but four to eighth, you know. It's like. Yeah, but... <laughs> I mean, he's one of the options. You you go one or two routes. You don't go the in-between route, which is no. apparently what the Pac-12 did. I don't know. I didn't understand that one either. I mean, me and you both were in agreement on Twitter about how weird that selection kind of was. Yeah, I talked to a lot of people. I'm going to put something in the war room, actually. A lot of Pac-12 reporters about this. No one would have picked David Shaw. John Wilner wrote a column and mentioned like five coaches. Did not even mention David Shaw. So it's more of a, yeah, he's been the best coach over maybe the last five years. But... You know, if you want to argue Mike Leach, he beat both Shaw and and Helton. But Helton beat Shaw heads up twice. And they, if you watch Stanford, people are like, oh, they were well coached. They were not well coached this year. No. I watched them a lot. They didn't play KJ Costello when they should have. They all, they should have lost to Oregon State. They won by a point. Bryce Love was out, but David Shaw didn't even play his best quarterback in that game stubbornly. Like he was asked at halftime, like, hey, are you going to put in Costello because he's been doing that? And he was given this smirk like he was trying to prove, no, I can win with the guy I want to win with. He almost lost the game because of being stubborn. Yeah, it, it didn't make any sense. I mean, if you only beat Oregon State, this Oregon State team this year by one point, yeah. that should just be automatic you know, elimination from that consideration <laughs> for me. Uh, yeah. Because they, they were very, very, very bad this year. And even you know after they made the coaching change, there was still there was not a ton of talent there. No. Um, and I I think Ryan Nall didn't even, did you know I think I don't think injured. he played in that game. Yeah, yeah. So and you beat them by one? Are you kidding me? Yeah, no. It's uh, that was Oregon State's best game of the year. So there's no way like Shaw should not have won. I'm not saying. 
Helton should have won. Shaw should not have won. Do you mean there, there's other candidates you could you go with? Rich Rod, you could go with Todd Graham. Those, Todd Graham, who got fired. Yeah. yeah, those teams overachieving from maybe the expectations earlier in the year. Yeah, even like Oregon and Cal, those teams like Cal was a team that no one expected to do anything. They were winning some games early, uh, kind of you know dropped off at the end of the year, but. You know, those coaches should have been more consideration, in my opinion, than David Shaw. Uh, you know, David Shaw and Chris Peterson both kind of should have been eliminated because you're supposed to be competing for the title and you didn't win it. Yeah. If you're one of those teams that, hey, going in, you're like, these are the top two or three teams. If you don't win it, then you shouldn't. That, right. That kind of should be an elimination for Coach of the Year. Yeah, I thought it was bogus. So back to that. We have a text question. Hey, Ryan, Coach, Dan, looking forward to an awesome opportunity versus Ohio State, but I was wondering if anyone has really talked to underclassmen about not leaving for the NFL. Just looking at last year's combine, the Trojans didn't really impress much, and the only ones making an impact in the NFL would be Adore and Juju. I believe these kids need to stay and polish their own games as as opposed to leaving for the money right away. Your thoughts, and thanks for keeping us informed, Eric and Rosemead. You know, last year I, I talked to Adore and Juju kind of leading up to it because you kind of knew those are the two guys. Those are fringe first-round guys. This year, you, you kind of expect Ronald Jones to leave. Um, he said he, you know, he was going to play in the bowl game. He wouldn't go out like that, I think is the, you know, what he said, um, by not playing, he meant. Um, so you kind of expect him to leave, you know, especially running backs. Very good running backs usually don't make it to that senior year just because of the wear and tear factor. Uh, besides that, you look at the other guys. Sam Darnold you know, has been asked. We, we've agreed that we don't think he actually has made a decision yet. Uh, so those are the two guys that are the fringe first-round guys. Yeah. I, you know, I, I think guys like Uchenna Nwosu, I think Rasheem Green, I think um, Cam Smith can all work their way up draft boards with very good combines, Rasheem Green in particular, just because I think he's been a, a beast that people kind of have overlooked because – you know that guy has been playing so many snaps in games and has been contributing big things, playing kind of a hybrid defensive tackle, defensive end role. And I think if a team sees him in a particular role and, and you know he does really well at the combine, which I think he could, uh, then I think he could really dr- push his way up draft boards and, and catch the eye of a specific team and get drafted earlier than maybe some people expect. But you know, there hasn't been really a, a lot of conversation with those guys necessarily about, hey, you know, what are you, what's your thinking on that? And a lot of guys aren't going to talk to, yeah. you know, at this point. Usually leading up to the bowl season, sometimes then some guys will, will start talking about it a little bit. Um, you know, and, and, sometimes, and a lot of times the decisions aren't made until after the bowl game because that's when people sit down with their families, they go through what, everything. Sometimes that happens during the Christmas break, but a lot of times it happens after the game and how the game goes. And, and somebody like a Dory who everyone just expected, oh yeah, this guy's definitely gone. No, no way he's coming back. He's a first round pick. And a lot of people, you know, a Dory, he was pretty close to coming back. It seemed like from the people you talked to around him, uh, you, you know, that it came down to, it was actually a last minute decision for him to you know what, I think it's best for my family for me to go ahead and go now. I, I don't think that there's any, you know, guys that that are in that same boat this year where, you know, the the two biggest names, those are the ones where everybody's concerned or, or everyone has talked about. But I think so far we don't really know much about the rest of the group. Um, Sam Darnold's kind of a question mark. Ronald Jones, I would expect to go. The rest of them, still kind of up in the air. Right yeah. Now. Probably shouldn't, but we'll see what happens. Sometimes someone has a huge bowl game and they get a little momentum. Like, who knows? But uh, we'll see what goes on there. Let's go. We have another text question. Love the show and all you guys do. This is for uh, anyone. Can someone please explain to me why Jody Lewis and Jamal Cook have become sideline fixtures? So much talent, and I cannot find anyone who has an answer or even 
thinks they know why they can't even smell the field. Also, with Shea Patterson being granted a transfer, do you think we will go after him and finally bring him to L.A.? South Carolina Trojan fan. Uh, probably no on the Shea Patterson thing. It looks like you know maybe a UCLA or a, a Michigan. But yeah, what do you and, think of the and, other stuff? And that one could, you know, if, if Sam Darnold makes his intentions known a little bit earlier, uh, then that could definitely play into that, and maybe USC does get into that mix. With Joseph Lewis, he is playing some. I mean, yeah. he even got a couple snaps in the Pac-12 championship game, which hasn't been the case, you know, most of the games recently. Uh, and I think most of the reason why Joseph Lewis has not got a bunch of receiver reps, he's still making, he's playing special teams. You know, he's played 190 snaps this season, which is not bad for a freshman at all, total snaps. The reason why he's not getting a ton of receiver snaps is because USC has found a nice three-man rotation with Stephen Mitchell, Michael Pittman, and Tyler Vaughns, and those three guys have been really productive. If three guys are being really productive, you're not really just going to start throwing extra guys in the mix. Like, <laughs> right. hey, we need to, you know, that you saw at the beginning of the season when there were more guys in the mix and, you know, there wasn't consistent production and everybody was clamoring for those three guys, that, you know, the two younger guys to play more. Now that they've gotten their opportunity, they've made the, they've made the most of it. I think Steven Mitchell's been really good all season as well. Um, so I, I don't think there's there's any room necessarily there that, hey, we need to throw a fourth, a fifth, sixth receiver in there into that mix. Would I have liked to seen those guys get five snaps a game? I think I've kind of said that all season. Yeah. Guys like him, Levi Jones, you know, get them you know, oh, three, Levi. four, five snaps just a game, just kind of mix them in, get them a play or two here, just because that, that extra, uh, you know, those extra opportunities help so much. Joseph Lewis, now, he's a guy that got opportunities early in the season. Didn't get a ton of balls thrown his way, but, you know, there's just wasn't a ton of production. So, you know, if he caught a couple more passes, you know, if somehow he was open, Sam finds him, you know, as a second or third option, that's when you see someone's playing type start to boost a little bit more. Jamel Cook, I think we've all discussed this, is kind of, I don't think necessarily that he was ready to play cornerback. However, why in the world he wasn't on special teams is beyond me. Uh, that one is the, the biggest kind of mystery of the season to me. Yes. I mean, there are a lot of mysteries on this team. There's a lot of questions <laughs> like, what are they doing? That's one of the biggest ones in the entire season is like, why, why is this guy who's super athletic, you know, can make plays, why are you not giving him a chance on special teams? That's the weirdest one. You know, uh, his future with the team has got to be up in question just because For of the sure. fact that, you know, he hasn't got any playing time. He's a guy from across the country. And in the last couple games, he, he didn't even dress up. Uh, he didn't dress for the games because, you know, Clay Helton said that he was focusing on academics. So we'll see. Yeah, the only thing I can think of is something off the field. So that's that's the only, I think, plausible explanation. But we'll find out. We, I wouldn't get too attached. I, I'm not guessing that you're going to see a lot more Jamel Cook in a USC uniform going forward. Not that you've seen a lot of them to begin with, but um, we shall see. We have another text question. Longtime listener since 2011. Only my second time sending in a question or statement. Last week I talked about this coaching staff should be held accountable for a mediocre job this season and still believe that for nine of the 12 games, they were either outcoached or didn't have a sufficient game plan. The team played great Friday night. The offense seemed to be clicking again like the first Stanford game. However, the same, the same mistakes or lack of preparation continue. Not getting lined up on defense, players looking around trying to get the play while the ball is being snapped, and two corners that should never be allowed to be locked and one coverage. The best thing that happened was Jack Jones getting hurt. Oh, that's tough. So it forced them to make a change. If we can't put up 50 and outscore Ohio State, this could be an ugly bull. I hope some changes are made to the staff ASAP. I uh, didn't leave his name, but that was... Uh... That's one of those statements where you just leave it. I don't want to okay. put my name I've yeah. only I've only sent in two messages, and I'm going to burn, burn down the house real quick uh, yeah. with this one. You know, I, I disagree with them not lining up and stuff. I mean, um, 
you know, I thought that they did a really good job against the Stanford offense, except for that last drive, kind of, um, where Stanford got two big plays and was able to move the ball down the field. You know, they, they really slowed down that rushing attack. Besides the Bryce Love uh, long run, I think he was averaging under, I think it was three and a half yards a carry, something like that, and maybe even a little bit lower than that uh, for the final game tally. Um, but in the, the one run, we saw that there were a couple of uh, areas where a, a little yellow hanky could have come out on, for a potential flag for some holding, but there was not called. Uh, I thought the defense did a pretty good job. You know, With the Stanford attack, if you can stop the running game, you can usually stop them. And part of that is putting you know eight, nine guys in the box and leaving those guys on the outside. And there's a reason why K.J. Costello was actually one of the most efficient deep ball throwers this season because teams are going to load the box, force you to throw outside, and they've got a couple big targets on the outside. Yeah. And, they you know, can make plays downfield They're going to sure. make plays, yeah. The, one of the biggest mistakes of the whole game was actually the – the ball that Marvell Tell kind of overruns and allows them to get that touchdown before halftime. Yeah, he was in great position. Yeah, and and people want to. I'm sure there are people blaming Jack Jones for that because he was there. Jack Jones is playing that perfectly. He's playing the outside coverage like he's supposed to, knowing he's got a safety in the middle and the safety didn't make the play. Yeah. Um, I, I think Jack Jones. I mean, what else happened in that game really against him? I mean, he got called for a pass interference when he got mugged. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So if you're complaining about Jack Jones in that game, I can understand the UCLA, the Colorado game. He, he was not very good in either one of those games. I, I thought Isaiah Langley came in and did a really good job until that final drive. He gave up a deep ball. Yeah. Uh, he was in pretty good position for that, too. Sometimes you just got to give the offense a little bit of credit, right. you know, that they make a play. Uh, and, you know, I thought the, the two throws over the middle, Caden Smith, I thought those were tremendous catches from the Stanford tight end. Nobody's like, why is Cameron Smith not covering him better? Uh, oh, <laughs> Well, because you know he had good coverage on it, he made a nice catch. The same thing with Jenny Harris on the second catch. It was just very nice plays. Uh, so I don't think that the defense could get a ton of blame for this, especially after you make a fourth down stop on the sixth play yeah. inside the ten yard line. Yeah. I mean, that was such a tremendous stop by them. And and Josh Fatu actually told me he's like, yeah, I was surprised too, because they had actually you know they got down right before halftime and been able to you know basically just ran the ball in on two plays. You know, they just showed their, you know, their strength uh, on their offensive line. That was, you know, USC was able to, to find a way to beat them on the goal line at their game. And it was kind of interesting when I'm looking back through the game plan. USC did a lot of Stanford things, a lot of two tight end sets. Yeah. Most they'd used all season. They used the pistol more than they had all season. You know, they went under center more than they had all season. Uh, so a lot of things that Stanford does, USC kind of went to their game and said, hey, we can beat you at your own game. They did it. Yeah. Costello completed 10 passes. So it's not like, you know, there were some big passes, but he only completed 10. Uh, Robin and Virginia is an interesting one. Uh, he wants to know, do you think USC could have made the playoff or would have made the playoff if Juju and Adore came back? Ooh, yes. I think they win, yes. beat Washington State, and then they'll, it'll be closer against Notre Dame and they go to the playoff. So I, would, I think it's pretty simple, yeah. Yeah, and... They're not going to lose any games because they came back. And you have to think that the Notre Dame game, you know, those first couple throws are one-on-one coverage. Maybe it's Adore versus, you know, one of the other guys. Maybe he bats down one of those. That was the big thing. Wimbush hit a couple plays early in that game, and then it kind of turned the tide completely because USC had to you know back away a little bit in those one-on-one coverages and give a little help. Um, so you know it could have been a completely different season, and I think you don't have as many receiver issues early in the season. Um, so I, I think you can play Juju, and then you say, hey, we'll give Tyler Vons and Michael Pittman a little bit more time early just because we know we can rely on the other side with Juju. So then maybe that Wazoo game, 
you know, it, it, there could have been a lot different in that. But hey, that's that's the life of, of college football. Your best players are, are usually not going to be around then full time. Yeah, good one, Robin. Tyler and Sammamish, uh, it seems clear to me, and I believe you said this as well, that an 18 playoff is an absolute must. The five conference champs uh, plus three others. So the the conference championship games, uh, a mid-December first round, uh, New Year's Day second round, and then the championship game. How much tweaking of the regular season would have to happen for this to happen? Seems like there would need to be a later start to the season, eliminating one of the lower-profile non-conference games in order to make a mid-December game reasonable. Uh, While I'm a traditionalist at heart, um, I realize that clearly those days are gone, but an A-team, every conference championship game winner, at least maintains the importance of conference regional games. Tyler and Sammamish. The problem with an A-team playoff is that you're starting to stretch the limits of what a college football season can be in one semester, for one, because then you're pushing it to, oh, let's get that second, you're getting a second game in January where teams are playing twice. Now you're, you know, you're starting the spring semester while you're still playing football. And the fact that you have 11, 12 regular season games, already 13 sometimes with, with a Hawaii game, and then you had a conference championship game, you had, you know, three rounds of playoffs then. You know, you can get up to 16 games, 17 games there. That's just that's as much as a professional uh, NFL player yeah, is playing. So that's a lot of games. That's that's a ton. That's a ton of time commitment as well for the players. What you would have to do, in my opinion, to get to an 18 playoff, and what I think should be done, is you equalize the schedule. Every team, every conference plays eight conference games, three non-conference games, and then you know if you want to do David Shaw had, had the perfect quote that I think it was Kyle Bonagura tweeted out from ESPN that. You know that said basically, hey, you have to normal. You have to equalize the scheduling there, where you play. Everybody plays one group of five. Everybody plays, you know, one power five, and then you can have a rivalry game or whatever. You know, that makes it even for all schools. Whereas right now, hey, Auburn play. I mean, Alabama plays. You know, a tough non-con. I mean, not a neutral site non-conference game early in the season, and then three pu- cupcakes. Yeah. Whereas USC just all played home, yeah. Notre Dame, Texas. And a Western Michigan team coming off of Cotton Bowl, and even if they're not any good, that's still you know a Group of Five game, and you have two Power Five. You know what other teams are doing that you're not, and then you have nine conference games where teams know you. Yeah. Very difficult. You have to make the schedule normal, and you have to eliminate a game. That's not going to happen because nobody wants to give up money that that extra game. Because even when Auburn is playing Charleston Southern, they're still bringing in seventy thousand fans to come watch it because everybody wants to tailgate and have a good time at the game, yeah. and they're not going to give up that gate. That's the biggest problem. Teams are not going to say, "I'll give up a game for the sake of college football." It's all about money, and if you're not making more money for the schools, then they're not going to be interested. Yeah, I uh, agree with you there. Let's go. We got Sergeant Rodney uh, from Fort Lewis, Washington, U.S. Army. Can you believe it? We actually won the Pac-12 and now on to Ohio State. What do you think the chances are of Sam coming back and Rojo, or do you think they're NFL bound? We kind of talked about Rojo. Sam, like 50-50, is that what you say? Yeah, or? I mean, it, there's so many factors. I mean, I, you know, I had a discussion with Bill Plask and a couple other writers uh, not too long ago, it's, and some people were like, he's got to go. He's got the opportunity. He's going to you know, potentially get all this money as being a first-round guy. But then the other side of it is, can he still develop? Is he going to go to a team that's going to help him develop in that first year in the NFL? Or, you know, I think if he were able to get to a, an Aaron Rodgers situation, or even Brett Hundley following Aaron Rodgers, where he could sit for a year 
and learn from a, a good quarterback, yes, he should go. I think you can develop more in the NFL that way. But is he going to be thrown into the fire and immediately say, hey, you got to save us. We're the Jets. We're the Giants. We need you in this New York market to save us. I don't think that's best for him. Can right. Josh Rosen do that for a team? I, I think so. I think he is, is yeah. further along in his development. Um, I, I think he can make all the throws and makes the progression reads and stuff. I think Sam still there's still things he needs to work on. The deep ball for one, making the pro- progressions in the pockets and not trying to. You know, he, he's gotten a little happy feet sometimes late in the season and try to get out of the pocket a little too soon when maybe he's had other opportunities. But he also shows that all those skills are there. Yeah. You know, he showed, he showed, you know, that throw to Pittman, steps up in the pocket, gets hit, he's getting drilled immediately, finds his man over the middle of the field on the one yard, you know, on the one yard line or even in the end zone when he makes a throw. Uh, you know, and he's thrown some deep balls that's shown that he has the arm strength to do it. He just has to get more consistency with that. So if he were to come back, I think he can develop, but I think that's one of the things you have to weigh as a family. Hey, do we need the money right now? Are we going to bet on ourselves that we can move up even more and be? Because the the thing is in the NFL, it's it's not about the first contract. You know, in pro sports, it's all about the second contract. Can you get to that second contract? Now, if you're in, you know, especially in the NBA, you want to get there as soon as you can to get that second contract. But the NFL, with nothing guaranteed, if you flame out in three years, then you There's don't no get second the second contract, contract yeah. at all. So you know, it, you have to bet on yourself that you're going to be better prepared. If you wait an extra year and you know, and then you get, get to that big, big contract, and you get if you're Kirk Cousins, you're getting twenty million dollars a year. I mean, that, it changes things a lot. Then yeah, I'm I'm kind of leaning towards he's going to come back right now. Just maturity wise, not uh, not about play, but for him to go into like an NFL locker room, and I think he's still kind of a kid in some aspect, which is not a bad thing. But I think he could probably use another year to to grow into that. But you know, we'll see. Yep. Uh, Edwin and Encino, thank you for your amazing. Thank you and your amazing team that provide Trojaholics like myself real substance between games. Now the season is over and the championship is won. I was wondering if anyone has calculated the quote unquote starting field position average for the season. Unofficially, we all know the disparity between Adoree's work a year ago and the returners this year must be uh, must be great. The disparity must be great. But I would be curious to know how much. Honestly, if the number is staggering, and I'm sure it is, it shows a strength in USC's offense that people rarely talked about. How we're able to execute 80-plus yard scoring drives. Honestly, I've never seen so many long drives successfully achieved in one season, even during the Pac-12 championship game. And when our returner again pinned us back to the two, I had this calm sense of, oh, well, this is just what we do. And it seems this was the way these kids uh, like to play. Uh, What do you attribute to so many successful long, uh, super long drives, Edwin and Encino? You attribute it to the fact that this is there's a ton of talent on this team. <laughs> yeah. So I not, mean, not necessarily punt return talent, but talent. I was trying to see if if this was actually on the statistics. I don't think it is. Um, like the average starting field average position, starting yeah. field position. However, it, it's been poor though. Poor. However, last night I did happen to look up when USC was backed up in you know their drives. They've had 50 drives starting at the 20 or further back. So you get the kickoff, it's a touchback. You start 50? 50. That's, that seems like a lot. So they've had 18 drives starting at the 10 or farther back. Sometimes it's a good punt, sometimes it's mistakes. So of the 50 drives starting at the 20 or further, they have 15 touchdowns. That's not a bad percentage, yeah. uh, you know. But of the 18 drives starting at the 10 or back, farther back, they have eight touchdowns. <laughs> Eight of their 18 drives. That is just a phenomenon. Two, they have two interceptions. 
They lost one on downs. They lost a fumble uh, and six punts. And one of those interceptions was the Arizona State after they'd driven 97 yards and then oh, they tossed the an interception. Pick. So they drove the whole field. Yeah, so they have, I, I think it's nine drives over 90 yards this season, <laughs> or at least 90 yards. So, I mean, this team has shown that, you know, they can they have explosive playmakers. You know, they can make plays. They can make guys miss on the outside. You've seen Tyler Vaughns. You've seen Michael Pittman make plays. You guys were, you know, if they single cover them on that side, they can go buy them, or you throw them a little hitch and Tyler Vaughn's just see somehow no one can tackle Tyler Vaughn's like right on the outside. You know, those those quick throws to him. Yeah, it he, seems like he makes the first guy miss every time. He does. He breaks a tackle, which I didn't think was really a big part of his game. But yeah, it has and, been. And and you know, coming in, we're like, oh wow, Tyler Vaughn's catches everything. Does he run by anybody? No. Does he do anything like really spectacular besides catch the ball every time? No. But you you put him on the field in a game day situation, and all of a sudden they just guys keep slipping off of him. Yeah. And uh, you know that the the catch he ran in for a touchdown. I think it was like a twenty six yard touchdown. He catches like a, I think it was a five yard pass, and he did the rest. He made the guy miss, and you know he, and that was like a p- dive at the pylon too, right? Yeah, he dove at the four yard line. So it just shows how <laughs> long and lean he is that he's able to you know to extend out there. But I just thought it was pretty incredible the fact that that USC. You know, the fact they've had 50 drives at the 20 or further back is not great, but when you put them inside the 10, for some reason, you know, I, I tweeted it during the game. This, this is why I looked it up was, man, this team just seems to, you know, it's all part of the plan. <laughs> Ryan's always complaining about the punt returns and stuff. And I said, oh, it's all part of the plan. You know, they just need to be inside the 10 to, you know, to get focused and, and get going on one of those drives. And they did a couple times that in that game. Uh, they were just really incredible drives, driving all the way down that nine-nine yard yeah, touchdown. Yeah, that was drive. like the goal line stand happens. You're like, oh, that's just like a regular punt, so it's no problem. Like you're used to starting backed up. Yeah, and that's part of the reason why <laughs> David Shaw did it because you just figure that, hey, we can get a stop. We can, you know, we can stop. We get the ball right back. We're in position once again. So that's why I guess he decided not to go for the field goal there to tie the game. Uh, and a lot of people were were uh, chastising him after that, but. I mean, USC with a, they've got a 99-yard drive, 98 against Utah. Also had a 97-yard drive in that game, which kind of gets overlooked because it wasn't the 99-yard one. 93-yard <laughs> against Utah, 92 against Wazoo, 91 against Oregon State, and a couple 90s against Stanford the first time in UCLA. So that's quite impressive. Eight touchdown drives of 90-plus yards this year. Yeah, insane. Um, let's go. Robin in Virginia. Sorry, we're just trying to get all through the right through all these. Right now, I'm seeing a lot of Saquon Barkley and Bryce Love Heisman talk by ESPN, but they are completely disregarding Rojo, who has better stats, more wins than a conference championship. Last year, no one talked about Dory Jackson and Ernest until the last couple of weeks. I've not seen I've not seen a push by USC that I do from other schools like Stanford. USC doesn't like to push any issue, it seems, and the program suffers for it. What are your thoughts to why, and why does ESPN ignore USC players as well? I'll chime in real quick since I'm a Heisman voter. Um, yeah, I mean, I just think that USC was kind of all in on Sam Darnold. They did the, uh, you know, so Ronald Jones uh, was definitely the the better Heisman candidate this year, but he wasn't going to win it with, he he needed to definitely do more. I mean, Saquon Barkley won it in September, but he, he fell off a lot. Bryce Love just kept doing what he was doing. Um, it just wasn't a focus on Rojo. And I think if USC's not like out in front of promoting guys, like Carson Palmer wasn't even on the media guide when he won the Heisman Trophy. I mean, so he was on the cover. USC is not aggressive uh, for that kind of stuff, but it just wasn't turning out. If someone was going to win the Heisman this year, they were going to be behind Sam. Yeah, I don't think you can blame ESPN for this one. I mean, how much love did ESPN give to Sam Donald at the beginning of the season? Oh, man. Uh, So, you know, they were all over him then. 
if Sam Darnold played the same, he didn't have the turnovers, uh, you know, if he played the same that he did at late at the end of the last season and he did that consistently, then I think the even with USC's record, I think there would still be talk about Sam Darnold. Uh, but when you, you lose a couple games, you, you're going to drop down in the, in, the, um, in the balloting for Heisman because it's basically the Heisman is basically the guy with the best numbers on one of the top five teams. That's basically what it's become. Yeah. <laughs> you don't see, like... There's you could no, have like ridiculous numbers. Like Rojo would need to go over two thousand yards, probably. Like if he like that's a, like a magical kind of number. Um, do something like that, and you can get it. Yeah, and and that's not something that USC would. You know, they didn't use him that way, and I don't think that they necessarily should have. I don't think he needed to have thirty carries every every game, like some people thought. Because you look at some of the running backs that, that have come out. Leonard Fournette, I think he had two thirty carry games in his career at LSU. Todd Gurley had a couple. You know, there's not. A, you know, Christian McCaffrey is kind of the the uh, the uh, difference in this in this talk because he had you know six or seven his you know his last two seasons at, at Stanford I think it was so but most times you're not going to get 30 carries out of a guy in college and I don't think you should wear and tear them these guys aren't Herschel Walker or Earl Campbell right you realize that there's and you realize how much wear and tear those guys take you want them to have a successful career in, in college and I mean in the pros and plus you had four pretty good backs for USC you know, especially if Stephen Carr stays healthy all year, then I think Rojo doesn't even get to you know the 1,500 yards he's at now um, or close to it because he wouldn't have got as many carries coming down the stretch because they want to keep both guys fresh. Yeah. Nicholas and Charlotte, thanks for answering my question last week. Even if you and I are not seeing eye-to-eye on Clancy, he said our defense had a great Pac-12 game, though. I had a couple quick questions this time. First, uh, what date does Sam Darnold and others have to announce for NFL Draft Day? Last year, I remember reading a certain date a Dorian Juju had this year. I can't find it anywhere. Have you heard any new rumors if Rojo State are going? We kind of talked about that. Uh, is the date like January 15th or something? It's I. Um, I'm trying to find it, but I'm not exactly sure. Yeah. I mean, you it has to be before they're, they're going to start sending the combine. Uh, so the evaluations, the those are usually made in December, I believe. Because it sounded yeah. like Clay Helton had had those evaluations and talked with the guys before the Rose Bowl, if I remember um, how he kind of said. Um the deadline is January 16th, okay. I believe. I was pretty close. Or at least it was this past year. Yeah, so um, somewhere around there. So, yeah, in the middle of January. So usually the evaluations come maybe even before the bowl games or, or a week or so before that. Give the, the players time to you know talk with the family and decide what they're going to do. But you have to do it before they start sending out the, in, the combine invites and stuff and, and start getting ready for the draft, which isn't until April. You might see announcements earlier, like Matt Barkley announced like just before Christmas. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, I remember it was December 22nd because it was on my birthday. But, uh, yeah, so sometimes they'll announce that kind of stuff. Uh, but, I, yeah, it's like mid-January is when you, you know. Second question, what's your opinion of uh, Olawale Batiku? Uh, I saw a photo of the defensive team. He was the biggest guy in the photo. Should we see Batiku more next year or even in the Cotton Bowl? He seems to have the size to be groundbreaking, but unsure uh, how he's been developed since he rarely plays. Thanks, fight on. Trojan Nation, oh, hi, no, Nicholas in Charlotte. You know, I, I think Olo Batiku still has a very bright future. I think he's only continuing to get better each and every practice. Uh, I mean, the the leaps and gains that, uh, that he made, the leaps and bounds of his gains from the last year are just, you know, such a, a big difference from when he first came in last year in the spring to, to now, uh, or in the summer, excuse me, to now. And, you know, he's, he's a completely different player from then. And you could say the same thing a year before that when he was in high school. He's just learning 
very quickly on the job. Uh, he's got so many physical attributes, but he just has not played a ton of football. And there's a lot of things, you know, and he, he's still having to work on his body that is not just all muscle. He's got to, you know, work on the hips and different things. And, and playing behind Uchina Nwosu and seeing how he uh, had progressed in his career, I could see a very similar career path where, you know, Oluwole doesn't play a ton early in his career, but then he becomes a guy that you have to have on the field because of, yeah. of what he can do. You know, I think it, if he can get better in his hips to where he can churn and, and change directions a little bit better, and, you know, he's done a really good job, a much better job, I'll say, of um, – you know, holding the edge this this year because last year when he would go in for the couple opportunities, you know, if they were ran, ran any kind of misdirection, he would bite going inside and they would be able to get outside or the quarterbacks would be able to get outside, uh, things like that. Whereas this year he's really holding that edge and doing his job on that side. I think he's just learning and progressing as the time goes by. Yeah, you can't look at him because he looks too amazing. You're like, if you look at him, you're like, holy crap, why is he not <laughs> awesome? And uh, yeah, he hasn't been awesome yet. We'll see. Nick and Camarillo, uh, everyone out, everyone out there in the in the extremities of Los Angeles or wherever you are, uh, if you're in the fire area, please be safe. We didn't mention that early on, but man, it's uh, it's crazy out there. You're, are you close to it? Or no? I'm you're not, downtown, not now. Yeah. Downtown. Previously, yeah. where I lived in uh, Sherman Oaks for three, four years, and you know uh, that would have been a much scarier situation then. Um, but we're hoping everybody is safe out there and. and you know, don't try to do anything heroic. Get your stuff, get out. <laughs> yeah. Uh, because that stuff, especially with the winds kicking up, can move so quickly. And give, uh, you know, give a, a fight out, a fight on, a salute out to uh, to Anthony Reyes, the former Major League Baseball pitcher, pitched for the Cardinals, former USC Trojan, who is a is now a firefighter oh, out wow. there on the front line. Uh, so give him a lot of credit too, uh, and all those firefighters throughout the, the job they're doing. But uh, everyone just try to be safe out there because yeah. it can you know things can change so quickly with fires and how you know as the wind changes direction. So yeah, we're down here at the beach and I got like an amber alert on my phone yesterday and I tweeted about it like it's I think Adam Rose tweeted it. It's like it's like it's windy. I'm like okay, like like my windows are shut. I don't know what to do. Like there's no nothing no dangers here. But obviously there's places you know around Los Angeles, the South Bay. I mean the the basin here that. It's a lot of danger with all the wind and everything. So yeah, hopefully everyone. Yeah, safe. Having, having covered a couple, you know, fire situations, just you never you want to be safe, not sorry. So if they tell you to get out, make sure you do. So we got uh, Nick and Camarillo. Hopefully you're safe. Uh, I just heard on Paul Feinbaum or Paul Feinbaum on the Tony Kornheiser show. Wow, that's a blast from the past. Talking about USC and the playoff. Paraphrasing, Feinbaum said that USC essentially ruined their chances by playing Notre Dame, and if they scheduled a team like Akron that week. We'd be in the top four. We'd never drop the Notre Dame game and obviously shouldn't. But do you think it might be time to consider an easier non-conference schedule given the committee doesn't seem to care? For context, Alabama plays Louisville, Arkansas State, uh, UL Lafayette, and the Citadel next year. There's no reason for the SEC to move to a nine-game conference schedule since they get the benefit of the doubt currently. So we're stuck challenging ourselves playing Western Michigan, Texas, and Notre Dame. USC scheduling is praiseworthy, but it seems like the wrong strategy to get the playoff. Thoughts, Nick and Camarillo. Real quick, I agree with you, Nick, 100%. Um, don't drop Notre Dame. They need to have it uniform. I don't think the SEC is going to do that. There's only two conferences that haven't missed the playoff. The ACC and the SEC, those are the two conferences that only play eight conference games. That's a, And and the Pac-12 goes an extra step by not just playing nine, but then putting all their top teams in horrible situations, too. So Yeah, the Pac-12 is, is terrible. And I think Larry Scott said, well, if this continues for like 10 years, then we'll maybe we'll, it becomes a trend. We'll be concerned. Uh, you should be concerned any year that you're not in the conference yeah. uh, in the college football playoff. Yeah, like you said, the the SEC is not going to change their ways. 
Uh, they're not going to suddenly be like, well, we should just be more fair with everybody else and give up all this extra money that we would get from the college football playoff. Uh, you know, if USC schedules an FCS school and Ohio State schedules Akron instead of Oklahoma, then all of a sudden those two teams are the ones you're talking about instead of Alabama uh, for that. But on the flip side, part of the reason why Ohio State got in last year even though they were not conference champion, was because of their tough non-conference schedule yes. and the fact that they played Oklahoma. They had so, three top ten wins and stuff, yeah. One of the biggest issues, and I think it's one of the biggest issues so far in the history of the college football playoff, the very short history of it, is that there hasn't been consistency. Yes. One year, something is important, the next year they're like, ah, we don't really care about that anymore. Right. Wait, What? I thought, I thought this was a big deal last year. So we changed this, we tried to get this, we tried to get this neutral site game with Alabama. No, we, you know that's not important anymore. Uh, yeah. And and you know whether it's true or not, Alabama. Nick Saban said the reason why they played Mercer is because no one else would play them. Right. I don't buy that. We'll see. They have the same formula every year. Yeah. Uh, and it's working. So why would they change? Right. Like David Shaw won the Coach of the Year because of his last five years. Alabama got in the playoff because of their last five years, not for what they did this year. Because Alabama doesn't have a really good win this year. So. Yeah. And, but but you, you, you I give them the benefit of the doubt because they're like, it's Alabama. And also know? they did schedule a team that many people were like, oh, this could be a national championship contender. Right. And, and then they and, lost their quarterback. They hurt their quarterback. Yeah. They hurt uh, Florida State's quarterback. And suddenly that team was no good. But then they're garbage. Maybe in Ontario, how are the referees for bowl games picked? Thanks and beat the Buckeyes. Uh, I mean, it's uh, different conferences. I think the um, I think the team that gets I think the Pac-12 will do the championship game because they were. But actually, I don't know because the Big Ten is out too. But I think the team that's left out ends up doing the championship game. But just watch the Pac-12 refs whenever they do different bowl games, and uh, it's it's awful. Uh, but you don't have the same conference. I mean, but yeah, I don't know the exact formula of how. Yeah, I don't know the that. formula. I, it's always neutral. You know. Yeah. You know, USC and Ohio State, there will not be Pac-12 or Big Ten uh, referees for that. This is Don. This Thank goodness. Yeah, they're the worst. Uh, Don, we were all happy for SC and Helton. Then Helton opens his mouth and reminds us who he is. This doesn't sound like it's going to go well. <laughs> USC overachieved. Guess Helton is full of himself now. Evidently, he was referring to the players overachieving in comparison to the coaching staff underachieving. Most likely, he was referring to the team injuries but that is part of the game. Uh, best not to judge Helton until he is without Darnold. Hopefully, all of us critical fans are wrong. Some OS, uh, since OSU was considered for the fourth spot, USC is getting the best team not in the playoffs. USC will be competitive? Question. Uh, Helton overachieves or a talented team which is penalty prone? Don. I'm not exactly sure what the question is. It's kind of all over the place. Um, I, don't, I don't really do you remember, I don't like, know the reference of the quote. Yeah, it was in it was one of the like conference calls or something. He had made some kind of reference to like USC overachieving it. Definitely uh Scott Wolf got all over it. People were kind of all over it about, you know, and I think maybe it was having to do with no bye week and all the injuries and stuff like that, but it it was a little bit strange. This is the part of the season where before they make the selection of who was going to be in that college football playoff, you say whatever you can. For yeah. one, and I feel like that was probably in the week leading up to this because it was not on the actual bowl conference call. So, you know, if Urban Meyer, Urban Meyer would say, yeah, we've, we've done whatever, we've overcome this and this, of course you're going to say, you say whatever you can to try to boost your thing. You say, you bring out all the facts that, oh, we played 12 straight weeks so that someone that's on, you know, if you have a national media member was like, 
Oh yeah, I forgot about that. Right. I didn't, you know, I didn't think I, I should consider that when I'm looking at their resume. When I'm writing about, you know, who should be involved, and then the next time, that's when the college football playoff. Oh, we, the committee they've looked at this article. You know, it, and you you feed down the line. Um, so I don't think it was anything he said that was quite controversial, just from the context that you've just given me. Yeah, um, I'd have to look up exactly where I forget where what it was, but it, yeah, it was just a, it was a little strange, but I wouldn't. Put too much stock into it. It's okay, people. Yeah, I don't think Clay Helton's saying that he's the best coach. I mean, he called yeah. Urban Meyer a legend. So right. he, he's a very self-deprecating coach in that regard. I don't think he's, he's saying that he's overachieved uh, with the team that he has. I would say that they know that they could have done better yeah. and probably should have done better. Um, you know, But they also had, were dealt some cards that were not very favorable. You know, playing the 12 straight weeks, playing on a Friday after a bye week, which, hey, guess what? No one has won. Yeah. So how much blame are you going to give to a guy when no one else has been able to, to win in that situation either? The, the Notre Dame game is the, is the biggest question mark there, I think, just the way that they, you know, kind of folded um, after getting behind early. I think that one's the biggest, the biggest thing you can look at this season. Uh, as you know, a biggest concern, but you know the way that they bounce back from that as well also shows the character of this team. And we said earlier in the season there was a couple games, and the Texas one in particular, like, hey, if one of those two guys that were there before, Sark Giffen, they're probably not winning that yeah, game. Yeah, yeah. So there's been. You should also have to point out that hey, there's a couple times where Helton's actually because of him they probably won, whereas someone prior to him would not have. Yeah, like Shaw struggled with a group of five team in San Diego State, and they lost. USC struggled with a group of five team in Western Michigan, but they won. So at least they're winning. Um, I think you have to get you know, people kind of poo-poo it, but you got to give them credit for winning some of those close games. Curtis Marino Valley. So we play Ohio State. Very talented, but sometimes don't play well, just like us. JT Barrett is not the runner Khalil Tate is. Not as good as throwing the ball either. I like the way KP uh, showed blitz. I think he's talking about Maybe he meant CP, Clancy Pendergast. He put KP. Showed Blissford Stanford, then sometimes dropped back into coverage to help the DBs. Smart move. Keep it up. Not super worried about this game. The Trojans will probably give us a heart attack, then pull out the win late in the fourth quarter. P.S. Can we please recruit the best punt returner in the country? Our best punt returners uh, just let the ball bounce and get out of the way. Dory Jackson spoiled us for three years, and we never participated, uh, prepared for an important special teams component. Curtis Marino Valley. I don't think there was a question in that, but... Interesting thoughts. I mean, with Ohio State, I think JT Barrett's probably a better passer than Khalil Tate. Khalil Tate's got the deep ball, but that's about it. Uh, so that's going to put an, an onus on Clancy Pendergast to be more balanced with his attack, whereas yeah. some of these teams like Stanford, you you make the young quarterback beat you, whereas now JT Barrett was a guy that was a Heisman contender early in the season. He's a guy that can beat you with his legs and his arms. They have a very, very talented running back in J.K. Dobbins. Uh, so... You know, they're, they're, you know, Clay Helton even talked about it. His favorite word, they got offense balance. So <laughs> it's going to put, uh, put the onus on, on Clancy Pendergast to come up with some things. And, and Clancy Pendergast has been a, a boomer bust type of coordinator. I mean, people might forget he gave up 63 points in that Arizona State game that, <laughs> that you remember before the tarmac after the game. Uh, so, but when his game plans are, are working, you know, they're some of the best game plans out there. But when they don't, you know, there can be a, a lot of points put up pretty quickly. Yeah, for sure. Uh, okay, this one's kind of long. But I, I agree. Ohio State is like similar to USC. Is like they can play. They're a lot of talent, all the talent in the world. They're, they're just like USC. And then some weeks they just play like crap, like the Iowa week and stuff. But 
Uh, it should be an interesting game. But yeah, one team could play really well and the other team could play like crap and it's like a blowout either way. Yeah. Uh, you hope they both play similar and that's like a good game. Uh, this or is, you can get like the, the Rose Bowl last year where both of them were both teams. They yes. were both, you know, at the beginning, at the end, USC was the team was much better and Penn State was playing awful. And then in between, you give up four touchdowns and four straight plays or whatever it was. Yeah. So. Seven straight touchdown drives for Penn State, but then like nothing around it. Uh, Imani, okay, this is kind of long. The corruption within college football has completely turned me off to watching the games next year. ESPN has sold its soul to the SEC. Listening to them argue for both Alabama and Ohio State was sickening. When the SEC played the championship game, championship during the BCS era, many believed the college football playoff four teams would solve the above. Instead, the SEC gets two teams in while the other teams were physically killing themselves to win a conference championship game. Alabama gets to stay home, heal their wounds, eat popcorn, and get in. The Tide basically received two bye weeks. Does Saban own ESPN? You don't have to read this email on the air, but I am. Uh, I'm just expressing how I'm done with college football. Enjoy the bowl games and the four-team college playoff. I will not waste a minute of my time watching the games. P.S. Ohio State, USC, UCF, and any other conference champion deserve that fourth playoff spot. Not a team that did not win its division, let alone the conference. P.S. Again, ESPN should be a saving of itself for the way it made a uh, case for Ohio State and Alabama. I look forward to the day they are forced to shut down 50% of its operations when fans cancel their subscriptions, that's from Imani. They, they actually have a lot of layoffs over at ESPN, so there's there's some struggles. But he's a, he's a boycotting college football, which I wouldn't do. I, I love college football, especially when you have a championship game like we did last year. So you know, if there's a game like that, now the the semifinal games were not very good last year. The championship game was worth every penny that you pay for your cable subscription. Uh, the does Nick Saban. On the SC, I mean, on the ESPN, I mean, Nick Saban does a tremendous job. He knows when to be good with the media. He knows he doesn't have to be good with the local media. If you if you <laughs> notice, like he'll go off on guys. But then you also notice, like he's doing walking around his house with Marty Smith, and he's walking, you know, doing uh, you know special call-ins for ESPN. He knows how to play the media, and you he has you know been the best at it for several years. I yeah. think of knowing when to talk, when not to talk, and who he, you know, he, he can be confrontational with as well. If you look back at the SEC media days, you know, um, th- when it comes to the college football playoff, if you know how to, to sell yourself right, you're going to help yourself out. Because you look at the football committee uh, members, their athletic directors and stuff, they don't get to watch you know, 100 games every Saturday. They're not filling up their DVR with watching an Oklahoma State versus Iowa State game and, you know, all these random games across the country. They're going to catch in. You know, they're going to flip through. They're going to see clips of, you know, the best games. And, and, you know, when they get to the top five, ten teams, then they'll watch those games. But they're not watching all these games across the country. You have to sell yourself. Uh, we had Steve from Beaumont kind of talking about the uh... – the, the conferences stacking the decks, which we, we talked about already. Thanks for sending that one in, Steve. Um, Scott in San Diego, he said, great win for the Pac-12. I'm currently watching other championship games. Can't help but notice the quality difference in the officiating for the Big 12 and the SEC championship game. There's no question who was running the game. The Pac-12 officials, by contrast, look like uh, their hands are on the wheel without uh, with and were holding off for dear life. I'm not sure if Larry Scott addressed the officiating issues after the game, but he needs to be held accountable. For the quality difference, thanks for all you do, Scott in San Diego. Yeah, I was watching the, the – the, I think we were watching together, the Oklahoma game. It was the middle of the second quarter, and there was a face mask. And they were like, that's the first penalty of the game. <laughs> You're like, are you freaking kidding me? But, yeah, that's 
we want to try to get through these, but yeah. I, I mean, this also it tells stinks. you that a lot of stuff is not called in the SEC. It's a much more grabby conference in the trenches in particular. It's much more like the Stanford teams that you see. Yeah. Robin in Virginia, uh, another one. Uh, who would be your offensive defensive players of the game and why? Oh, I, I, you got to take Michael Pittman. I thought Michael Pittman should have been the MVP I think uh, over been, Sam yeah. Darnold. Um, nothing against Sam Darnold. But, and then defensively, it's hard not to look at that fourth down stop and the fact that Uchenna Nawos has been so good all season. Um, so I would get, go there. The other option is probably Chris Hawkins. I mean, career high 13 tackles. His grandmother had died less than 24 yeah. hours before. In fact, he's playing with a heavy heart and came out and made some big plays, including the, the first down stop on that fourth down uh, goal line stand, getting, making a tackle in the back uh, backfield there. Tyler and Sammamish, more about the officiating. We talked about that. They're bad. Fr- they're bad. Frank in Sacramento, he said, after the Pac-12 championship game, I raced home to watch a recording. Bryce Love fumbled the ball at the end of the first quarter, and Hilton should have challenged the call. Frank in Sacramento. I believe when I rewatched it, they said on the broadcast, you cannot challenge forward progress. I don't think that's something, you know, if they, once they mark forward progress down, I don't think that's something that can be challenged or can be overturned, uh, which is why I don't think there was a review even uh, of the referees there. Yeah. Or was there? I can't remember. I don't think there was. Like, we thought there was going to be, but everyone on Twitter was saying, yeah, that's a fumble, that's a fumble. Um, so yeah, that was, uh, and that, that led to a touchdown. So Stanford fumbled the ball six times. Yeah. The two that USC recovered quote air quotes there were that one where the forward progress was marked and the other one was reviewed and overturned to be a forward pass. Correct right. call on that one. Uh, but four times the ball was on the ground and USC couldn't come up with it. And in a couple of times it was sitting there. I mean, I, I posted a couple pictures yesterday, the, the Rasheen Green one in particular, the ball seemed, I was shooting you know, I'm looking at the ball through my camera lens. I'm like, it's just sitting there. It's just sitting there. It's just sitting there. <laughs> you put and up it those pictures, like, yeah. It feels like forever when you, you know, especially when the fumble, like it just seems like time standing still. But, you know, I, in you look at the replay, the ball is like right beside Josh Fatu's foot. He doesn't see it, though. Um, and the the guy that's blocking him actually falls like immediately, like like he's playing a, uh, a childhood game. He just immediately falls down on the ground and, and recovers the fumble. And the other one, the... The um, Lieutenant Owosu has the ball go through his hands. Oh, yeah. And Bryce Love, you know, inside the 10-yard line uh, on that one. I can't remember if that was the fourth down goal line stand as well. Uh, but the the one, the, the reviewed overturn of the incomplete pass, and then also Rasheem Greens were on the same drive, which was a touchdown drive. So there's two opportunities on that drive. You know, there's a couple opportunities inside the 10-yard line with the, the forward progress and the second Bryce Love fumble. You know, those are com- potential absolute momentum changers. That's why you, the game was close. That and the fact that, that Sanford was able to score right before halftime, those are the two main reasons why that was a close game. Or else USC, because of how well their offense was doing and how they were able to run the ball at will at times, you know, that you know, USC outgained them by, I don't know, 100, 150 yards. Right, yeah. With that and the fact that there's some hidden yards and like the punt returns and stuff, you know, th- those were the two main reasons, though, uh, why USC, you would expect when you, when you outgain them by 150 or so yards, then you would able to be up by, you know, 14 points or at least. All right. We're going to have to knock, we're try to knock a few of these out. We only got like five minutes or so left. I'll try. Marcel and San Gabriel Valley. It appears our defense is built to stop the run, but they're just horrible against the pass. How do the numbers compare between now and when Justin Wilcox was the defensive coordinator? And what are the chances Ken Norton comes back to USC? 
the difference in Clancy Pendergast is he's going to blitz and he's going to be aggressive. And they're going to have negative plays there. Negative plays. Whereas Justin Wilcox was, you know, they were throwing, you know, they're killing USC with six-yard hitches and, you know, seven, eight-yard. just seemed like every play was six, seven, eight yards. And, and then they were just, you know, slowly going down the field. Death by a million paper cuts. Yeah, yeah. and USC never, it didn't seem like they ever got any pressure. No. Uh, so it was it's kind of two opposite uh Types of philosophies, of philosophies yeah, yeah. and you know both of them can be good or bad. Ken Norton's not coming back. He got fired by the. I don't think. I don't think Ken Norton will be coming back to USC. Uh, he got fired by the Raiders. Uh, let's see. Jr. and Albuquerque. Thank you for sharing your insights and opinions on the podcast. It feels good to be Pac-12 champions. With that being said, I had a question regarding the assistant coaches. Seeing our DBs get beat over and over, always out of position, confused, lost, etc. It has to be clear to most fans, and hopefully, Clay, that a change is needed at DB Coach. Offensive line is another key area of concern for the program moving forward. My question is, how much do we pay our DB position coaches? Uh, We don't know that. Uh, And what do other top blue blood programs like Alabama, Clemson, Ohio State pay their DB position coaches? And how does it compare to USC? My main concern is that Clay has not shown the ability yet to recruit top-tier position coaches from other great programs, which hurts our player development and recruiting at the end of the year, too. Clay Helton, lack of player development in key positions is obvious. All the problems we have endured on the offensive line this year, last year, for example, I mostly attribute to poor position coaching uh, and subpar recruiting due to constant turnover there the last five years. Does Will USC, quote-unquote, pay up for top-tier position coaches? And Do they believe Clay Helton has the ability to snag talented position coaches and retain them? For a while, Jr. and Albuquerque. Real quick, I love the Dylan McCullough hire. That's a great. Uh, I think they got to keep doing stuff like that. And I think they pay on par. I don't think, you know, I think T makes a lot of money. I think a bunch of the guys make a lot of money. I think they they do fine in that regard. The, the bigger question is the support staff. You know, there's yes. not a ton of money there for that. Um, but you look at the the two the two main coaches that were not already invested. Okay, Clay Helton, John Baxter, Neil Calloway, Tyson Helton, all had previous relationships with them. Um, Clancy Pendergast basically brought in uh, Ronnie Bradford as his guy. Outside of those, you look, you got Johnny Nansen was kind of still on staff, so we'll not include him either. But Konechi Udezi and Dila McCullough are the two that Clay went out and found or you know located. These are the two guys. Now Konechi has connections with USC, yeah, obviously. Yeah, I mean, he was but, a strength coach and stuff. But, but yeah. those two guys are the probably the two biggest assistant coach uh, stars on the staff. I think both of them have tremendously bright futures so i don't think you can say well clay isn't being able to go out and spot and find assistant coaches that are good now will he make changes and try to go do that that is a question yeah i think it's the whole initial staff when you're high like all the circumstances of being hired and all that kind of stuff the deal in mccullough if every if things go that way i think it's a positive thing for usc if they make if he's able to make changes in the offseason like you know what now i got my guys but i'm going to get rid of this guy i'm going to bring him in whatever it is i, I think that would be a positive aspect uh steve guys why would espn totally ignore rojo's first run uh, of the night going over oj i don't know i guess they didn't talk about it or something i it was I, announced it was fast forwarding so i didn't yeah it was announced in the press box and stuff and we were all over social media but i yeah so i don't know my guess would be they didn't have a graphic ready just yeah. you know inside how but a lot of people made. were ready they knew like a lot of people knew he one run he could be over yeah. that so John in Oakland, uh, on a recent podcast, there was a suggestion of hiring some of the recently fired coaches to be assistants. I agree with you that this would not be helpful, but what about bringing in one as an off-the-field consultant like Jim Mora? Similar to what Saban did with Sark, he could give Helton and the staff 
an outside perspective on the team, especially how the UCLA game is played against uh, how the UCLA how excuse me how UCLA game planned against USC. Keep up the great insight into Trojan football, John and Oakland. I think Sark's a very unique thing because of the way he had to be fired and all that stuff. So he was kind of like an untouchable coach. Like Moore was just fired for performance. So it wasn't like that's a very different thing. Nick Saban has brought in several prior coaches um, for you know analyst positions and stuff. The question becomes. Do the coaches want that type of thing? You know, USC would bring in you know every fired coach that they could and would love to get those insights. You know, Kevin Sumlin, I think, is a huge talent as far as intelligence. Just watching him on some of those, you know, the the college football playoff championship, they they uh, they show we got the, the coaches the coaches <laughs> room uh, where they do the film and the coaches are talking about it. And I, I watch that every season. And Kevin Sumlin was an absolute star on, on uh, you know, the, the two times I've seen him on it. You know, if you can bring him in, sure. Does Kevin Sumlin really want to come in and be an offensive analyst or whatever it may be rather than, hey, I'll get another coaching job? You know, that's the difficult part. You know, it's not going to – head coaches aren't going to go from, you know, this 4 $5 million now is what head coaches are getting to be like, uh, yeah, I'll be a $300,000 offensive assistant or whatever the, the pay is for those guys to analyze uh, your game tape. All right, we got a few more. We really got to do them quick. Uh, Huntington Harvey, kind of, it was kind of long. He was basically saying that um, no other college football program has an easier path to their conference title than USC. So he's saying that USC fans should expect more than just winning uh, the conference. So he's one of the, I think he's kind of uh, critical of Clay Helton. And I get that, but USC hadn't won it since 2008. That's the thing. And the South had never won it. So, Maybe it's easier or whatever for USC to do it, but I think you still got to give Clay Helton do you know credit for winning it. Yeah, and you know it ebbs and flows in every conference. You know who's the power team, except in the Pac-12. USC has just been so dominant. I don't mean it's the easiest path. Look at Oklahoma right now; they have a pretty easy path in that regard, especially with Texas down right now. Yeah, and uh, so he was he's saying that the AD everyone should push for changes for. Um, the staff and stuff like that. We'll, we'll kind of wait and see what happens. If, if they don't make any changes, I think that would be an area for concern. Lynn Swan is not going to fire Clay Helton after a Pac-12 championship. No, he's not. And he said he wouldn't uh, force him to do anything on the staff. We'll see if that's true. Bill in Vegas, any talk about bringing Sammy Knight back as a DB coach? Um, haven't heard anything like that. I don't know. And I, I don't think you're – don't bring back former players that have, have not coached, like that aren't – like. If you want a DB coach, get a really good DB coach. Don't bring a name you've heard. I mean, they've, Sammy, they've done that many times. Sammy Knight has coached. I, th- I think he's in the NFL coaching uh, last I uh, heard. I don't remember. But they're not going to be. You're not going to hear a ton of names come out unless there's actual movement yeah. to get rid of coaches. So no, we haven't heard a ton of names about who they're looking at because those positions aren't open. The question will be that tenth coach. What does Clay Helton do with that? Yeah, that's going to be a big addition. And then Don. Last thing, we less knowledgeable, opinionated fans appreciate your wealth of knowledge and insight regarding Swan's Monday meetings with Helton. Do you believe there are very general or possibly more detailed, uh, s- such as questions about certain play calls? Um, I, I, Swan came out and said he doesn't talk about that stuff. Since the play calling is shared by just about everyone, you think that Swan brings up certain plays? Um, I know if I was AD, I would ask those questions to better gauge the performance of my staff. Difficult to analyze coaching personnel without knowing who is responsible for game plans and play calling. Clancy appears to be transparent, but the offensive side seems to be a mystery when it comes to who's responsible for what. T has gotten most of the blame. 
but quite possibly the questionable play calls uh, may not have been his calls. Hey, Don, I agree with you on that. But just from talking to Lin Swan after the game, he was sounding like, you know, I think he has high expectations. He wants them to win, but he's going to let Clay do his thing. Now, maybe behind the scenes, he's like, hey, you know, you need to get rid of this guy or do something. But he seemed like, from what he was saying, he's going to like, I'm going to hire the coach and let him do his thing. But he's going to have high expectations for what he wants him to do. Yeah, it seems at least that he's being more CEO than you know, trying to get his hands dirty too, like Pat Hayden, you know, was on the recruiting trail, I think, at one point yeah. because they were down with staff members. So I don't think he's We heard Pat Hayden was like in on like offensive meetings and very stuff. Very invested. Yeah. So yeah. I don't think Lynn Swan is quite as as uh, involved and meddling as much. All right. Well, we're going to have to wrap it up because we have uh, it's, it's about 12 minutes to the top of the hour. I got to edit this and get it up before we start our live show. So uh, thanks, Shotgun, for coming in the studio and uh, answering the questions. It's better than just me talking. It's nice to have you there. Just trying to help you out. Yeah, nice. Well, okay. I hope you guys enjoyed this edition of the Peristyle Podcast. Make sure you check out our live show. The replay will be up uh, on USAFootball.com. And then Shotgun and Keeley will be recording their Family Feud podcast a little bit later today. So that'll be going up as well. So lots of stuff. Hope you guys enjoyed it. And we will talk to you next time. You've been listening to the Peristyle Podcast, presented by uscfootball.com. Be sure to tune in next week for the latest news on Trojan football and recruiting. Don't forget, you can automatically download the podcast directly to your smartphone or tablet for free. Just click the iTunes link on peristylepodcast.com or search for Peristyle Podcast at the iTunes Music Store.